every generation there is a chosen podcast. It alone will analyze the subtext, the allegory, and the clever Whedon-esque dialogue. It is Conversations with Dead People. Welcome to Conversations with Dead People, a post-mortem podcast on the works of Joss Whedon. My name's Paul, I'm your host, and I'm typically joined by guests from the worlds of fandom and academia as we make our way through the critically acclaimed series Buffy the Vampire Slayer and its spin-off series Angel. Uh, this week we've made it to the Buffy Season 5 episodes Checkpoint and Blood Ties. And back with me again, the boy from Brazil, Johnny Ho, friend of the show and fan community organizer extraordinaire. Johnny, I feel like we just talked over on Gobbledy Geek. I know it was a little while ago, but it, it feels like just yesterday. But uh, it's always great to have you back in the graveyard, man. How's it going? Thank you for having me back. And it's great to discuss a little bit of season five of Buffy. Yeah, is this your first? This is, I, I think the last time you were on was season four, right? Yeah. Okay, so this is your season five like debut. Episodes. Exactly. Yeah. All right, well... Um, yeah, I feel like uh I feel like we're kind of in the sort of the doldrums of season 5 a little bit here, so I don't I don't have a ton of notes on these two episodes, although there is some good stuff in each one. Like the each one of these episodes accomplishes something and there there's stuff to talk about, but I don't have a it's, ton of notes. Neither do I. It's really weird because this we are in the midpoint of the season and both of these episodes are so season plot heavy yeah i thought i would be more i, I would have more things to, to note about i have more notes in, in my but I, I barely filled a page for each one of these episodes so. <laughs> yeah well i don't know I'm, can this. <laughs> I, I, i've surprised myself on this podcast before going into an episode thinking yeah i just don't have anything to say and then i talk for two hours so we'll see what happens but um before we get into that, I do want to say I don't do this very often on this particular show, um, partly because I'm not very good at doing sort of in memoriam things. I just I never really know what to say, but I feel like I really I really should take this moment. I, we shouldn't let the moment go by. Uh, we need to pour one out uh, for one of my all time favorite actors, Rucker Hauer. Um, Definitely. Yeah. Uh, Howard passed away a week ago as of this recording, uh, Friday, July 19th. Uh, he was 75 years old. I think probably everybody uh, will remember him for his role as Roy Batty, uh, and particularly Batty's final soliloquy in the uh, the classic 1982 Ridley Scott masterpiece Blade Runner. I personally would like to add to that list of masterpieces the uh, the perhaps less classic Richard Donner 1985 fantasy Ladyhawk, uh, and Howard's turn as the uh, the cursed but stoic Captain Etienne Navarre, um, one of my favorite films. I love that movie, no matter how cheesy it is. But um, I think, obviously, for our purposes here on this podcast, I think we're sort of required to mention his 
I don't know, maybe kind of regrettable role as Lotho's Vampire King in the original uh, film version, Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Exactly. Um, I don't have... I, I think there are maybe two... Because we also lost Luke Perry, who's, who was also in that movie. Yes, that's right. Wow. Very recently. Yeah. Um... Yeah, man, I don't I don't even remember if I if I've said any words about Luke Perry on the podcast. Shame on me, but uh thank you for bringing him up here. Uh so uh, rest in peace to both of them. Um I I was uh I, I don't I'll admit I was a bigger fan of Rucker Hauer than I was of Luke Perry, but I didn't have anything against Perry. But anyways, uh rest in peace to both of them and uh I am certainly going to this weekend. I'm planning to go on a Rutger Hauer viewing marathon with Blade Runner and Lady Hawk leading the charge. But uh, there's some other stuff in there too. Night Lady Hawk, weird but always memorable. Yeah, and Blade Runner, awesome. always awesome. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Uh, I think Flesh and Blood is going to make the cut in there as well, and uh, Blind Fury, which is just a terrible '80s like. B action movie, um, Wanted Dead or Alive. I think I'll probably watch. Anyways, there's t- he has so much. Uh, he, Howard had so many acting credits, and and all of his roles were great, even if the films he was in weren't always <laughs> up to his caliber. But anyways, so um, there's that. Uh, I should get the the spoiler warning out of the way, and then we can dive right into the discussion. So if uh, you're joining this conversation for the first time. Conversations with Dead People, not your typical rewatch and review podcast. Uh, we're going to be exploring the plots, characters, and themes of each episode in depth and within the context of the series as a whole, which means spoilers and a lot of them. So I recommend if you haven't already watched Buffy the Vampire Slayer and Angel the series all the way through at least once, press pause on this podcast and go do that. You can come back whenever you want. We'll always be here. We're never going anywhere. This podcast will live forever <laughs> like a vampire. Um, and now with that uh, out of the way, Johnny, if you're ready, let's go to work. Let's go to work. All right. So we're doing episodes 512, Checkpoint, and 513, Blood Ties. Let's kick it off with Checkpoint. Uh, Johnny, what do you think about this one? This is this is a very special episode of Buffy the Vampire Slayer where she finally learns to appreciate her own value. <laughs> I really like this episode. I, I don't know... I remember really loving it, but rewatching it this time was a little bit weird because I decided not to rewatch the entire season. So I just pull up, we scheduled the recording, and then uh, let me just pull up these two episodes. And I think you have been mentioning this issue about this season, about the episode being more about the season plot rather than being one-offs. Right. They're having uh, a monster of the week. And this happens in both these episodes, both for Checkpoint and also for Blood Ties, in which it's really weird just to watch it by itself without following the season along. Because so much of it, it, it it's exploring about their, the big bad of the season, which is glory. Right. Yeah, I don't know what it would be like to just tune in for these two episodes. As but they're weird. Yeah, yeah. Um, so as I was watching these, um, 
I was kind of like I wrote my note at the top that we were kind of in the doldrums of season five because as I was watching them, I watching these, I was like, I, first of all, I wasn't taking practically any notes at all as I was watching, and I was like, I just don't know what I'm going to have to talk about with these episodes, but. I forced myself to go through point by point and, and make some notes and find some talking points. And, and, uh, um, there is some stuff. These episodes do some stuff there. They, they are actually very good episodes. So this one checkpoint is written by, uh, Doug Petrie, at least now I've gotten this wrong recently. I've, I've miscredited episodes recently. So I believe this one is written by Doug Petrie and Jane Espenson. Uh, both, both of them fantastic writers in, in the, in the Buffyverse. Um, so like the writing is great. I think maybe in my estimation, the episode suffers because it brings the damn watchers back. And I just, I'm so, I am so over the watchers council. Um, but having the watchers council here, uh, is actually what allows for some of the best stuff, which I mean, we'll get to at the end of the episode obviously is, is one of the highlights because it's Buffy finally putting them in their place. But, uh, um, let's see, but I mean, there's, there's a whole episode that happens before that. So like what, uh, what good stuff? Oh, because it's fault. This follows immediately after I think triangle, which was basically an, almost in a one-off. Right. Then we reach directly into this episode, which is so plot heavy about the season in which we have the, the waters council back and it's a weird thing that the series never never really settles about how powerful really the council is is from what they try to establish during these episodes it seems that they really that the council is really wide ranging about their power they have they they even uh, use Giles deportation as a, as a leverage point for, against Buffy during the episodes. So is the council really that powerful? From what, from what Giles mentions in his lines, apparently so. But then later on in season seven, they're up and they're gone. <laughs> I, I genuinely have no memory of what the Watchers Council is like after this. Um, I'd kind of forgotten that the Watchers Council ever came up again, to be honest. So I forgot they were in season seven, but um, for a second, for a second. For, okay. For a second when they blown up. I, I would say, yeah. One of the reasons why the Watchers Council have always annoyed me. First of all, um, Harris Eulen, the actor that plays Quentin Travers is fantastic. I, he's, he has a long and storied career uh, in Hollywood and, and he's done all sorts of fantastic roles. And some may argue that Quentin Travers of the Watchers council is one of those. I would not be one of the people that argues that I cannot stand Quentin Travers. There's nothing about that character that is compelling to me, even as the mustache twirling villain. Uh, he just doesn't interest me. I really, I would like to see Buffy stake Quentin Travers. Um, so anytime he's on screen, I'm like, Oh God, this Schmendrick again. Um, but I would the whole say of watchers with him. Yeah. Yeah. Um, now, okay. We'll get to Lydia. Cause he brings, he brings a bunch of watchers with him. And one of them provides a genuinely lovely moment for me. And that would be Lydia. But in terms of the watchers council as a whole, and sort of this question of what, what is their power really? Um, it's been really ambiguous. I think, I think one of the things that this series 
uh, one of the sort of crutches this series leans on perhaps a little too much from time to time is the notion of telling us how dangerous a bad guy is rather than showing us. Um, and I feel like that maybe is the case with the Watcher's Council. We've been told all along that the Watcher's Council is this, this, you know, ancient order of, of powerful move makers or whatever. Like we're supposed to fear the Watcher's Council because they're so powerful and entrenched. And, uh, really they've just told us that over and over again. And I mean, I'm not entirely sure they've ever really demonstrated that that is a f true because they're almost always just doofuses whenever they show up. They're easily thwarted anytime they pop up on the show. But I would say this episode, the, the whole question of them having the sort of political juice to like close the magic shop and get Giles deported, I found that completely believable. Like that, like that seems that seems like the most credible threat that the Watchers Council has ever presented to Buffy and the Scooby gang is the notion of getting Giles's green card revoked and having him shipped back to England. Yeah. So. And they're one of our threats during this episode that introduces other elements also. Like, for example... This is our first episode with the introduction of out of nowhere of the Knights of Byz Byzantium, something like that. The, the Knights of Byzantium. It's a new element. <laughs> yeah, it's a new element from the season, I think. Yeah, this is our this is the first time we see them and I I know they pop up again. I don't remember how often they show up and how like I I don't remember how big of an element they are, but as soon as they as soon as the guy in the chainmail showed up, I was like, Oh, I remember these dorks. <laughs> um yeah, I don't know. I, I don't know how I feel about the Knights of Byzantium. They're kind of any anytime you see a bunch of guys in medieval armor swinging swords in Sunnydale, I, it's it's a little bit of an eye roll for me. But are they are they like a? I can't, if you remember, remind me. Do they become like a credible threat or are they a resource? Like I said, I know they show up at least one more time, but I don't remember what role they serve. Uh. When we are in the final arc of season, they launch a uh, big attack against the Scoobies. Okay. When they're away, and that's mostly their threat. When they're trying to basically acquire the key and destroy it. Right. Yeah. So that's their role: is they they want to destroy the key. I mean, they are uh, ostensibly they're good guys, I guess, because they're purpose is to destroy the key to keep glory from getting it and glory getting the key would be a bad thing but obviously in our context they're bad guys because the key is dawn although i guess some viewers might not say that's a bad thing some some <laughs> viewers are probably like all right go ahead you can have her but go ahead, you can have her. but okay. uh, i'm a fan of dawn and i think for the, we're supposed to acknowledge that it would be bad if uh if dawn was killed off by a bunch of uh white guys in medieval armor but um anyways buffy makes quick work of them so in this episode at least they're not much of a threat uh, a, go both ahead both institutions in, the case, in this case the knights of byzantium and also the washers council being a little bit one-minded mm -hmm. and this is one of, of the aspects that that's really well explored in this episode in which Buffy finally figures out her value in this power structure. Right. 
Um, and also, curiously, uh, during this rewatch, especially recording this this podcast with people, um, something really I something that I didn't notice when I used to watch and rewatch a show before is how these these entities are so male centric. Oh yeah. I know, I know. Watchers can constantly bring a few female watchers with them, including leaders as you mentioned earlier. But including last season when we we were discussing the power structure within the initiative, they're basically a male a male organization. Yeah, it obviously serves the the sort of the larger or one of the larger themes of this series, which is the the gender roles and the the flopping of gender roles and female empowerment and all that stuff so having um primarily male dominated antagonists is, is kind of an obvious step for the show but it also makes sense i feel like historically you know i i realize i'm about to make a point here about the historical accuracy of something in buffy and i'm going to have some words about historical accuracy in buffy here in a minute but historically it would it makes sense that organizations like the Watchers Council, I, I I think it's realistic that they would be, you know, uh, a male-dominated organization. It's not, that's not a good thing. I'm just saying I think it's historically accurate. So, yeah. Um, but uh, which is funny because one of the scenes of this episode is Buffy stuck in a history class and she questioning about the history of Rasputin. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I was gonna say. First of all, I love any reference to Rasputin is is fun for me. I just um, <laughs> ever since Mike Mignola made Rasputin an ongoing supernatural threat in the Hellboy universe, I'm just in love with Rasputin. But uh, so that was a fun reference, and it thematically ties into the message of the episode. But um, it is. It is funny for a show that plays so fast and loose with historical facts and accuracy that the history professor is seems particularly righteous and condescending. Very much so. Yeah. Uh, I mean, speaking of historical accuracy, a bunch of white guys in medieval armor calling themselves the Knight of Byzantium, Knights of Byzantium. That's not, yeah. There's not a lot of uh, credence paid to historical accuracy with that group but whatever <laughs> whatever it, the show does what it does another thing that is brought upon in this episode is a, is a thing that was shown a lot during season four season three is the different methods from the scoobies and these other established organizations so we had a little bit of this earlier when riley went out to patrol with the other Scoobies and he was all military procedures and they were snacking. Right. Patrol. Yeah. In this case, we have the Watchers Council members basically interrogating the other Scoobies. Yeah. And we see them dealing with, with, with the situation different ways. Um, in this power play at the end of the episode, it was, it's their, exper their experience is something that Buffy brings uh, something that that her group of friends share with her in this situation that the Watcher Council does not possess. Yeah, I mean, the, the 
the the uh, the interrogations they're all fun, but they're also sort of enlightening. Like the the um, the interview. Well, I'll I'll say interview instead of interrogation. <laughs> the interview yeah. with Willow and Tara. Um, first of all, that was great because it, it's awesome to finally see Willow openly, unambiguously declare uh, that Tara's girlfriends. Yeah, that they are they are romantic We're sexual partners. Exactly. Um, even though that wasn't actually the question that was being asked, but it was still good to see that. But in that interview, the you know the watcher, this stuff is played off as jokes, but I still latch on to these stupid details. That watcher was like, "Oh, what level are you? You're witches. What level are you?" And and uh, Tara just randomly says, "Oh, we're level five. and he seems satisfied with that. So now I want to know what the heck, like, how do they rank witches, and what is level five? Like, where is it a scale of one to ten? What is that? Are they belts like in karate? <laughs> right. Yeah. Exactly. Um, Belt levels. The the interview with um, Xander and Anya. That's fun. Mostly just for. Uh, Anya's whole, like her full name, Anya Christina Emanuela Jenkins, twenty years old, born on July fourth, raised in yeah, southeastern Indiana by both a mother and a father. Also, the fact that the fact that she used to be a demon isn't something that they share publicly, even to their alleged allies, which the council kinda is. Well, yeah, theoretically. I suppose. But, um, and that, that's another one of the funny moments in this episode is when that sort of slips out at the end as Buffy's giving her, her ultimatum speech or whatever. And, uh, she says a thousand year old ex demon. And Anya's like, Willow's a demon. That was fun. That's a wonderful scene. That's I love that. Um, but the other interview that, uh, so I mentioned Lydia, we have to talk about Lydia. Exactly. Cause she's, a, she's a joy. Well, I don't know if she herself is a joy, but the scenes with her and Spike are just, uh, among my favorite scenes of the entire season um her whole you know i wrote my thesis on you and he's like oh isn't that neat <laughs> so great i love him i love the way he i just love when he peacocks like that <laughs> that was a wonderful moment a wonderful moment about spike presence in, in the history of the series yeah just the series, but the mythology that established that about him. Yeah. Um, and more more Spike greatness in this episode uh, is obviously the uh, when Buffy brings Joyce and Dawn to Spike for him to look out for them, to look after them, and keep them safe. Um, I mean, this is going to happen more and more as the series goes on until the and you know until the the bow finally breaks and this relationship is over but uh as these moments pop up where spike is given more and more trust and responsibility within the group i live for that stuff so the the scene when he agrees to look after joyce and dawn and then especially when uh joyce when he and joyce start watching passions together like that stuff literally makes my heart swell <laughs> yeah exactly so I love those yeah and the reports that established very early on between Joyce and Spike. Yeah. We have they, that. And also the the report that's being built between Spike and Dawn. Yeah, I which is a thing we'll talk more about that in the next episode, but yes, I'm I'm super fond of the relationship. 
what relationship we get. And um, I would have been super fond if this, this relationship had been allowed to build even more, but between Spike and Don, I, I, I love the, the sort of bond that those two have that they develop. I just love Spike having a bond with anybody. <laughs> so, but um, because I'm a, I'm a defender of the character of Don and I will, I have been and always will be a defender of the character of Spike. I love the fact that they, they kind of pair off a little bit. He's actually one of the richest characters we have in the entire series. Absolutely. Yeah, he's definitely flawed. Mm-hmm. Uh, next season, we'll get that horrible scene to show us how he's a monster. Yeah. But he gets a chance to redeem himself, and very few people get this chance. Right. Uh, he had a great line. Well, that's a boatload of manly responsibility to come flying out of nowhere. <laughs> Good stuff. Good stuff. Um, obviously, I feel like the the uh, the big pin that we need to put in this episode, or the flag of this episode, is Buffy's final confrontation with the Watchers Council, which is great. So, um, how do you feel about that? I love that entire scene, including the build-up, which includes. Buffy being approached, being basically suffocated by the council during the entire episode, and then be approached by Glory at home, and then be attacked by these, these new elements, which is the Knights of Byzantium, and then finally reaching this conclusion that she has the power. Yeah. Our Everybody was afraid of her, and it's one of the major moments that we get it's a wonderful speech that channels into the end of the series yeah. at least yeah the quest- questions of power have been addressed before in the show and will continue to be addressed especially in season 7 I think but um, usually I feel like the, the power struggle is like a literal power struggle like it's literally about the fact that she's the slayer she's got the strength of 10 men or whatever like it it tends to be about actual power and i do like the fact that in this instance it's not like we didn't we didn't even talk about it's this not just... yeah we didn't even talk about the scene with um with glory in her house that confrontation there where it's it's already been proven that she can't physically take glory so there's no reason to have a fight so um, I just I appreciate that the power being referenced, the power that she is embracing and claiming here is not physical power, not her ability to punch Quentin Travers in the face, no matter how much he deserves it, but just the fact that she has things that other people need. And in the case of the Watchers Council, it's just they need a reason to exist. They need her to be their tool so that they even have a reason to be there. And she's not going to let them have that, at least not on their terms. So and that's a wonderful line from that speech. <laughs> yeah, it's great stuff. Um, yeah, let's step back just a little bit and talk about the the glory in the summer's home scene because that was that was great. I love Claire Kramer. I love her her charm on camera. Her creepy, funny, scary humor. Uh, when she's on camera and I really loved so I watched the episode twice um, and the first time I watched it 
I viewed the scene when she when she calls Dawn in and she's and she's talking to Dawn and says uh or, or Buffy says she doesn't know anything leave her alone and Dawn is like I I know stuff I'm going to figure stuff out or whatever and then she storms away. Uh, the first time I watched it I viewed that as oh this is Dawn being you know petulant this is Dawn mouthing off to Buffy because she does she she has been picking up on the not so subtle clues like she does know that something's going on and that Buffy is keeping stuff from her and she's going to figure it out the second time I watched it I viewed it more as this is Dawn actually being smart this is Dawn realizing whoever this girl in the chair is whoever this glory person is is a threat and is trying to get information out of me and by switching the scene around to make it look like I'm a petulant younger sister who's just going to get in a fight with Buffy and then storm off that sort of diffuses the situation a little bit that lets Dawn walk away that distracts glory enough from her line of questioning that Dawn can get away. Yeah. So I don't know what, I don't know which of those that was, that scene was meant to be, but I kind of read it both ways on two different viewings. Definitely both ways are possible. Yeah. I prefer the it's second just, just cause I like Dawn to be, I, I I like Dawn to be effective and intelligent as often as possible. So, or just a little bit of both. Also, yeah. with I'm just I I'm not non logical. I have knowledge. Right. Yeah. Um. Okay. Uh, is there anything else in this episode that we've missed? It's weird. It's such a plot heavy se- uh, episode, but. Actually, not a lot happens yet. A lot of things happen. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, um, so I guess we can move on to blood ties, which I've said uh, certainly last week or in the last episode of this podcast. I I hinted that blood ties was one I was looking forward to, and so when I rewatched this time, I was a little bit excited. And then, just like with Checkpoint, my first rewatch of it, I was like, oh, "There's, there's not a lot in this. Like, I'm not taking a lot of notes." So I watched it a second time and I got more out of it the second time. But this episode does include one scene. So I've been looking forward to this episode for one scene in particular, which obviously we'll talk about. But to start at the beginning, uh, Blood Tie is written by Stephen S. DeKnight, um, which this is, if I'm not mistaken, this is his first uh, writing credit on the series proper. I think he was originally, if my trivia doesn't fail me, I think he was originally hired as a writer for the animated series that they were doing the Buffy the animated series which uh, criminally never happened (laughs) Um, and so when really short presentation that you can find on YouTube and that's awesome yes it is awesome and I really wish that we had gotten that or could still get it in the future but anyways when that fell through I think they brought I think that's when tonight came over to the regular series and and he goes on to become one of the big names in the show, one of the big writing names. But anyways, so thoughts on Blood Ties. Blood Ties is our first episode airing February. So back then when these things still mattered, this was our big episode to open the February sweeps. It's a big episode about conf- uh, in which they will face glory and also... Everybody learns about the key. Yes. Yay. <laughs> it's no more secrets. No more secrets. Um, wait, Ben is Glory? What? 
<laughs> I've been awaiting this whole time to get to I that. love that. Uh, um, which this helps make sense. So a line from the previous episode that we didn't uh, cover was uh, when I think his name is Jinx, one of Glory's minions. Uh, when Ben like beats him up and he goes back to Glory and uh, he's like, he says something about he is handsome. And, uh, and glory is like, well, of course he's handsome or attractive or whatever they say. Of course he's attractive. Seemed like a weird line, but then you find out, Oh, well, she says, of course he's attractive because they're the same person. So of course he's attractive. Uh, and we have the beginning of the gag of Ben is glory, of course, which will be a forever joke in the fandom. Yeah. Yeah. Do you remember, uh, I want to ask, jumping to the end of the episode, do you remember on your original viewing of this, if you understood what was going on at the end when Dawn couldn't remember that, that Ben actually was glory? Cause, um, in this rewatch, um, I don't remember how I figured it out before or how I viewed it before, but on this rewatch, I was like, it was that, was that vague? Like, I feel like it's possible viewers could have looked at that, could have see, watched that scene before they, before the joke goes on to become the joke, Ben is glory. Yeah. Absolutely. They could have watched that scene and thought, is Dawn covering for Ben right now? I think that was a, maybe a possible theory back then. Okay. I don't remember being so clear that the transformation wipes out memories. Yeah. So which is something that really is explored during this entire episode about how memories are being manipulated all, all around. Yeah. Um, uh, let's see. So, yeah, we, we talked a little bit about the Spike and Dawn relationship, and here we get a much, a much bigger chunk of that with Dawn sneaking out of the house and... Uh, Meeting up with Spike. I wasn't lurking. I was standing about. It's a whole different vibe. <laughs> and this is our annual birth- birthday. Yeah, that's right. It's the birthday the episode. Episode goes crazy. Go cray cray. <laughs> so, um, uh, things happens always happens on birth- Buffy's birthday. So in this episode, we have. Buffy and Giles finally telling the rest of the Scoobies about what Glory is after mm-hmm. and about Dawn being the key and the fact that all their memories about Dawn are fabricated. And this won't be the first time in this franchise overall that we'll see memories of people being manipulated, changed. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that uh, that gets really dark next season. Everything gets really dark next season. Um, so, the uh, yeah, do you? How do you feel about the Scooby Gang being so upset about that? About Buffy and Giles keeping that secret? Do you feel they're justified being that upset about it? Mm, I'm not sure, actually. <laughs> okay. Because. They're upset in a few ways. It's justifiable, but then they learn about the truth and they just start acting really awkward around Dawn, and that doesn't help at all. Right. They just made things really quickly. Right. 
So, yeah, no, I'm glad you said that because I felt both ways when they were first getting, uh, like, w like when she first told them when they were all sitting around the table in the magic shop and, and, uh, she was like, I was telling, you know, we kept this a secret to protect you. I didn't want to put you in danger. And Xander was like, oh, you mean like the danger we're in, we're already in all the time <laughs> or something like that. And I was like, yeah, I mean, I, on the one hand, I guess I get it. Uh, Buffy was trying to protect them, but you're not really protecting them because they're still involved in the fight. They're still going up, up against glory. Um but yeah, then obviously once they all know the truth and they start acting super weird, it's clear that maybe Buffy made the right call in keeping some of this back. The all right, so let's talk about the Spike and Dawn stuff, <coughs> since that leads into the big scene that I want to get to. But the Spike and Dawn stuff, uh, this introduces the whole notion of Dawn being sort of a klepto, which. For some reason, I remember the fandom making a big deal out of like that's one of the defining features of Dawn in in a lot of the fandom's mind, and I, I I don't know that that's fair. I mean, I guess the fact that she kind of steals stuff to get attention later on leads to one of the biggest episodes of the show, but I don't know if it's really enough of a recurring theme that we should define Dawn as a kleptomaniac. And. Um... It's one of the very uneven things that you have have already discussed previously also during the earlier episodes of this season is how uneven is the portrayal of of Dawn's age. Yeah. Because she's established as a 14-year-old girl, so she's about to finish junior high, basically, and sometimes she acts so childish that you question that, but... Buffy became a slave when she's 15. Right. And Dawn is 15. Should she be acting this childish? Of course, you can bring up the conjecture that maybe that was one of the uneven elements of the magical spell that turned the magical ball into a human, and you have to fan wank this a bit. Yeah. Completely to accept this. But then uh, we recently just had another new season of Stranger Things over on Netflix and those kids are like 13 and 12 and look what they, how they act. Yeah, they're way more mature than most of the adults. So, so uneven. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, the comparison. Yeah. Uh, man, I love Stranger Things. <laughs> Thanks for name dropping that. I love that show and I loved uh, the third season. Um, yeah, so the, the sort of childishness of Dawn... I, I don't know. I, like I've, like I've spoken about previously, she certainly can be annoying, and I think, I think often that is because the writers go out of the way to portray her as childish and annoying, which is perhaps unfair to the character. Um, in this episode, like I mean, she learns some pretty horrible stuff, and like particularly in the scene when she's she's up in her bedroom and. Uh, uh, Joyce and Buffy go up to try and comfort her or whatever. And she, uh, she's another running joke through the fandom, the whole get out, get out, get out uh, thing. Like people give Dawn and perhaps Michelle Trachtenberg. I don't know so much grief for that scene and for that line delivery. And uh, I don't know. I thought it was, I, I, so Michelle Trachtenberg is perhaps not the best actress on the show. I, f I think she's a better actress than she gets credit for 
uh, especially for her age. Um, but she, she might not be the best actress on the show. Um, but in this episode in particular, I feel like she really sort of brought the house down, uh, in my opinion, um, particularly with the scene after, after the magic box, after she and Spike break in and, and read Giles's diary, which it's weird that Giles would write down all that stuff because anybody could read it. But anyways, just leave it at a magic shop stand instead of taking those notes with him. All right. The time. Right. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I guess, I guess he's planning to add them into the watcher's journal or whatever, but still, it's just weird that that stuff's written down anyways. So after she makes that discovery and she goes back to the house, one of, I, I, this scene is particularly powerful and particularly harrowing for me. I'm not entirely sure why. I was never, um, I was never a cutter uh, or, or anything like that. I, I, I didn't experience this particular kind of trauma uh, in my teenage years. But there's just something about Michelle Trachtenberg's uh, portrayal, <clears throat> like her performance when she walks into the room and says, "Is this blood? Am I real? Am I anything?" That. Uh, Man, it's just one of the memorable scenes of the entire series for me. And even if I had been annoyed, as annoyed by Dawn as virtually every other viewer always has been, all of this time, if I was, if I was as anti-Dawn as everybody, I feel like that scene alone would be enough for me to be, guys, come on, let's back off a little bit on Dawn. Like, just for that scene, I appreciate Dawn's inclusion in the series. The big issues, yeah, the f- the fact that their the age portrait wasn't even didn't help a lot. Mm-hmm. So you have, I think, a lot of the fan reaction at the time was about that also. Not not about the age itself, but mostly because she's just so annoying. <laughs> yeah, but. Um. And, yeah, I mean, she she she's undeniably annoying, but um, I just feel like the pain that the character goes through in this episode. Other people are annoyed by her her whininess and the fact that she like almost burns the house down because she burns all of her journals and all that stuff. Um, to me, that just all first of all that kind of stuff. Her reaction in this situation, I feel like, seems appropriate. I'm not even it just even aside from the whole age appropriateness of her behavior or whatever. I feel like for this character making this discovery in the world that she's living in, um, her her kind of meltdown over this feels realistic to me. And like I said, the whole her kind and of and I agree. Yeah, this is um, this was about herself. Even Xander and Willow, they weren't helping because they were all awkward towards her when they found out. So yeah, it would. They were were they were also not fine about figuring out that Dawn wasn't real. Yeah. So Dawn figuring her finding out herself that her existence is questionable definitely led to a not good reaction. So. Yeah. Her cutting herself and trying to show that no, I'm real. I'm these notes are. You have to be lying about this. Yeah. And then um, I was also really, I, I kind of teared up a little bit when she, 
after she she goes to the hospital and um she is confronted by first ben and then she learns that ben is glory wait what ben is glory um when she's trying when she's trying to subtly pump glory for information and the information she is specifically seeking is what is the key is the key evil like that is that's what she wants to know now is she, she's starting to accept I'll the fact exactly, yeah. yeah she wants to know does that make me evil or whatever that's a i don't know that that was pretty powerful to me and then when glory's response was well of course it's evil and dawn kind of sank back into herself and you saw the tears well up in her eyes and then glory's like well i mean from a certain point of view or depending on how you look at it or whatever so i don't know that that was super emotional for me so people can can come down on dawn all they want but uh, at least in this episode i was I was very, very moved by her performance and by the the character arc. Now, from here, I don't know. It it goes back to some awkward and maybe uh, annoying places, but at least in this moment, the discovery of her true nature is really powerful. Uh, another parallel that that it's nice to establish it's uh, Joyce and talking about this with Dawn, which is a little bit like when a parent is telling her adopted children that they're adopted yes <laughs> yeah how they react is basically adopted child a child finding out that they're adopted but for alternative ways and not the parents actually telling them hey we're not your biological parents blah blah right yeah yeah no that was definitely um i feel like maybe uh i've talked about i or one of my guests have talked about this on an earlier episode although i can't remember i don't think the show has ever really raised the whole notion of an adoptive sister because that's not sort of the narrative that's happening up to this point she's not supposed to be the adopted sister she's supposed to be the oh she was always their sister but yeah i feel like i or forget to buffy is a photo about a memory that's not real yeah that was see that was sad too and then everybody's everybody's reaction to that and her being like what what's going on i just was too cheap to buy you a real present um yeah man this dawn is a tragic character um she she gets more annoying but she's tragic right now uh now, about the confrontation with Glory, okay. uh, that we did not address at the end of the checkpoints discussion, is that uh, the big revelation that the Watchers Council brought to Buffy about who is Glory is the fact that she's not a demon, she's a demon god. Right. We did We did absolutely complete to men- completely forget to mention that at the, at the end of checkpoint. And maybe part of that is because... Um, I I think it's kind of cool that Glory is a god, not a demon, but uh, that revelation kind of landed like a with a thud. Like <laughs> I, I I don't know. How did you feel about it? I I like it. I appreciate it. But it was almost sort of a non-revelation to me at the end of that episode when that happened. I, my I think my reaction was kind of like Buffy's. It was like oh <laughs> okay. Um, when it's meant to be one of those sort of dramatic dun 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 revelations, and I don't know if it really hit with that degree of of importance. Did you feel like that? Really, 
had the impact it I was supposed to. I don't remember all of my reactions when I watched the episode first time ages ago. Uh-huh. By rewatching Blood Size, I was actually reminded of the early spoiler rumors that we had when season five was running, which about the big back of the season would involve a pair of sibling demons. And that was like back in 2000 when when the season was... Uh, two, uh, 2001. No, no. 2000. No, before that. Before, because these, these episodes are, were broadcast in 2001. And the early rumors that those spoiler, spoiler sites that we had back in the day... <laughs> were being posted back in late 2000s and I remember reading something about sibling sibling demons back in the day and this is something that's a little bit established about the relationship between Ben and Glory right. this episode finally and it's this sibling element that's finally in, fi- really introduced from the I, early they were not that wrong <laughs> yeah I have a uh... I have zero memory of what was floating around in the realm of spoilers and, and uh, teases and stuff back then. So I, again, I don't remember how much of this stuff I saw coming. I don't remember if the whole Ben is glory thing, like knocked me out of my chair when it happened. But um, the, so like in my notes, uh, when we do these podcasts in my notes, I have, I write down like the original air date written by directed by the guest cast. And then I write down the metaphor. So I try to find whatever the, the what is the metaphor of this episode for this episode? The only thing I could come up with was "ugh, family. Am I right? That's my, <laughs> that's my metaphor for this episode. And uh, even though the whole Ben is glory thing is a running joke in my notes from there on, I never once, I never made an additional note about Ben saying, I know sisters are tough. I have a sister. I get it. Like the whole fact that Ben refers to her just subconsciously. I've been thinking that because the joke is Ben is glory. My thought had been, Oh, they're the same person, but they're not actually They're. I, I don't remember how much of the actual like physiology, like what the rules of Ben and glory are. I don't remember how much of that gets explained, but Ben does have a line in this episode where he's talking to to Dawn and he says, I have a sister. I know what it's like. So he at least is implying that they are siblings in some way. In some way, yeah. Yeah. Think how they are merged together is explained later on in okay. the season. I believe so. It's one of the reasons why how they're actually dispatched by Giles at the end of the gift. Yeah. It's the major way how they explain this. And it's a double play also with the fact that we have that entire sequence about Summer's blood and mm-hmm. Dawn being made from the same blood as Buffy and they're really being siblings. It's a, uh, it's a comparison between the two cases a little bit. Yeah. For this episode. Yeah. Um, let's see. I'm looking through my notes, seeing what else, what other big stuff do we have here? Oh, I wanted to, I, I just need to mention the whole, what's the frequency thing when Dawn is in the, at the hospital with the, the mental patients. And that one says, what's the frequency? Um, I assume I have to assume that that's a reference to the, the whole Dan rather thing. Are you familiar with the, 
the um, news newscaster Dan Rather in the 80s sometime. I'm scanning through my notes, seeing of her. Uh, 86, in 1986, there was a, a, a mental patient who, like, attacked Dan Rather and, like, I think beat him pretty badly. Um, uh, and he was, he actually was shouting at Dan Rather, what's the frequency, Kenneth? Like, that's what he said when he burst into the studio or whatever. Uh, and his belief was that television frequencies were being beamed directly into his head. And so he was trying to figure out what the frequency was so he could block that. And of course, that's the inspiration for the REM song, what's the frequency, Kenneth? And um, I just thought it was a neat little nod to nice have. Catch. What's nice that? Catch. Some nice catch. Yeah. I didn't even associate the line with these events, which is just barely knowledgeable about. Yeah. So I mean, I think I think it just ties into the whole, the because what the key what the key is is the it's the it's the frequency to open the gate so that Glory can get back home or bring home here. I don't remember what she's trying to do if she's trying to get somewhere or bring something here, but but um, the whole notion is that Dawn is the is the the frequency wave that will let her open the gate. So it was, I just thought that was a neat little thing that they dropped in. It was kind of weird. Actually, when he said it and he said, what's the frequency? I, I kind of, my brain kind of stumbled because I was waiting for him to say, Kenneth, I was waiting for him to say, what's the frequency Kenneth. And, but uh, it was enough. It was enough. So really early in this episode, they established that glory was, is a God that used to rule another hell dimension with another two hell gods. Mm-hmm. And she was basically, I don't remember if they mentioned this in this episode, that she's banished to this to, to this world. I don't think they, yeah, I don't yeah. think they said that. Mm-hmm. But, um, uh, which this, yeah. this is a, this is sort of a theme or a motif that runs through both shows, this and Angel. I think it comes back, it certainly pops up at, in one major series long arc in Angel, the whole notion of a, a a demon or god or whatever getting trapped in the earthly dimension and doing whatever it takes to get back. Um, do you, I don't remember if I've so you haven't been on season five before, so I guess I haven't asked you this question. So I'll ask you now. Um, where does Glory rank in your in in your personal ranking of? Uh, like the big bads on the show. She's my favorite. Okay. <laughs> favorite villain okay. from the seasons, yeah. Awesome. So even more than the mayor. I feel like people go back and forth between Glory and the mayor. I prefer Glory over <laughs> the mayor. Uh-huh. And also Glory is like, like a reinforcement of that about the blonde girl that is the first victim in the mo- uh, in the scary movies. Right. So have a little bit of that with Darla really early in the series, on the first scene of the series actually. Yeah. Uh, and then we have Buffy herself about sh- she's the skinny blonde girl and she's the hero of the show. And once again, we even have the. Really cool, actually, a really cool action scene when Glory's minions are attacking the Knights of Byzantium people and losing badly, and that she just appears and then starts kicking ass. Yeah, yeah. No, the um, I I love 
I personally, I don't know who I like better, the mayor or glory. I love both of them. And as anytime any one of them is on camera, I'm like, Oh, well, this is obviously the best of the big bands. <laughs> but, uh, so right now I'm really, I'm really into glory. And, um, I'd previously talked about the fight choreography when glory and Buffy first met. I don't remember what episode that was. It was really early in season five when, uh, when glory like kicks down the door, the, that gigantic door of the warehouse. Um, and I loved the physical practical effects that they used there. And that whole fight sequence, the choreography of that between her and Buffy was great. Um, but the, even though the fight between her and the Knights of Byzantium is not nearly as like awesome as that first fight between her and Buffy, when she's tearing up an entire warehouse, yeah. it is, it's super effective for me because in that fight, in the in the one with her and the Knights of Byzantium, you get a better sense of the fact that Claire Kramer is a, a petite young blonde woman. Um, when she was fighting against Buffy, they're both petite blonde women, and you, there wasn't really anything to give it scale. But here you see her taking on five or six big guys in chainmail. Um, it just looked really cool. Like even though it wasn't quite as dramatic as that earlier fight, it was much more effective in showing um, how this tiny blonde woman has superpowers. Um, they, I love the solution uh, to the fight at the end of this. Um, and I also love the way that they, they show that it's, it was kind of a one-time solution that, that Willow and Tara can't just do this anytime they want to. The whole teleporting uh, glory away as she's about to kill somebody. Who was she about to kill? Dawn? Was she about to kill Dawn, maybe? She was attacking Dawn, and Buffy stops stops whatever weapon she was throwing at her. Yeah. I think, yeah. And um, yeah. Tara and Willow throw the, the powder and do the teleportation spell. Yeah, I really like that. Um, not only because it gave us a funny little uh, line of her materializing, you know, 400 feet in the air and saying, oh, F or whatever, as she plummets back to the ground. Um, but that's a super handy thing. And I'm glad that they show. And I think they also continue this into the next episode. I think next episode um, we see that Willow is still kind of recovering from casting that spell because here at the end she her she collapses and her nose is bleeding and giles says something about that spell's way too powerful for someone of your level to be which i guess is level five for someone of your level to be casting so it was a cool it was a cool sort of deus ex machina way of getting out of that fight and uh, i appreciate the the pretty graceful way that they handled uh telling us that yeah, she's not going to be doing that every episode. <laughs> Willow's not going to save the day just by snapping her fingers every time. And they're still really outmatched against Glory. Oh, yeah. And yeah. Definitely. And another element is the slow build-ups that we're seeing about the f during the season for a few of the upcoming really cool battles that will be set between the Scoobies and Glory. Are you talking about the troll hammer? Not the troll hammer. I'm I'm thinking about Willow versus versus Glory from later in the season. I ooh, I I actually don't remember what goes down between Willow and Glory later on. I'm sure I 
I know something does, but I don't remember what it is. The the sort of foreshadowing I saw in this episode was um, when Spike and Donner at the magic box, and Spike is like, "Oh, a troll hammer, cool!" and goes to pick it up, and he can't lift it. Yeah, um, and says, ah, "It doesn't go with my outfit, anyways." Um, that's just to remind us. I mean, they already established the troll hammer when Olaf the troll was here a couple episodes ago, but that's just to remind us it's a thing. It's still here. Yeah. It's in the magic shop. You might see it again. It's a Chekhov's gun in the form of a troll hammer. Exactly. It's it's Chekhov's troll hammer. <laughs> yeah. Um, all right. Uh, anything else? What else happened in this episode? Ben is glory. What? Ben's glory? Really? <laughs> Wait a minute. Are you saying Ben is glory? Okay. Really... Funny scene. Um, two things. Uh, when they, when Buffy goes to argue with Spike after finding out that he kind of helped Don, mm-hmm. is he's sitting inside the crypt. And for some reason, I thought that was really weird. And then he just throws the, throws, throws the top of the crypt away when there's, when they're arguing, which is really weird. Oh, oh, um. No, I think what actually happened there, if I remember, he was he was sitting on top of the crypt uh, when Buffy bursts in, and she she yanks the lid of the crypt out from under him, and he falls into the crypt. Ah, oh, yeah. And uh, and then he stands up, and she's pinned, and she pins him with the lid, and um, so I mean that was kind of a fun scene, but I also I really liked the way that when Spike had had enough, he just casually flipped that like, you know, twelve hundred pound sarcophagus lid or whatever across the room. Uh, just the casual way he demonstrated how super strong he is. And now his crib doesn't have a lid. Anymore. And now it doesn't have a lid. Well, he can, he can <laughs> unless it broke. I guess he could pick it up and put it back on there, but. Um, <laughs> Yeah, I think it was actually, I think it was in Checkpoint, it was in the previous episode when, uh, he, yeah, because it's when Buffy brings uh, Dawn and Joyce for, for Spike to look after, like, he, he, she bursts into the crypt and he, like, freaks out and jumps out of quote-unquote bed, like, jumps off the crypt and he's like, oh, it's the Slayer, man, I was, <laughs> I was worried for a minute, that was great. It's weird. Both these episodes had so many cool little moments <laughs> from dialogue scene, but I remember liking them better back in the day. Yeah, they, they seem so solid on this rewatch. There, I I think they really are kind of just uh, workhorse episodes where they're they're taking specific plot points. Um, one of them is uh, Buffy accepting, learning the truth about Glory, and accepting like her position of power. Uh, that was the very special episode of Buffy checkpoint. Um, so that was a plot point that needed to be moved forward uh, into the back half of the season. And then this one is Dawn and everybody finally figuring out the truth about the key. Uh, so that was, that was a box that needed to be checked off in order for the season to progress. So yeah, both these episodes are written by, you know, some of the best writers in the, in the Whedon verse stables, um, and they both have great moments and great lines and great scenes, but, uh, you know, as a whole, they're both just kind of 
workhorse episodes that are just achieving a goal and not necessarily great standalone episodes. I guess that's at least that's my take on it. Listeners may disagree with me. I don't know. They often do. I hope someone who may be watching with us or maybe actually following the season might enjoy it better than someone who just decided, hey, let me, let me pop up this episode that I really enjoyed and then it's weird. I mean, I would be fascinated. I'm fascinated that you like haven't revisited. Have you been listening to the podcast about season five? Yes. Okay. So you, so I'm you, you fascinating by the last episode in which you spent almost two hours with triangle and, <laughs> into the, and we can barely do this in these two episodes. I know. I don't know what to tell you. It's just the, this is the way, this is the way it goes sometimes. This is just the way it goes sometimes. Um, yeah. So I, I mean, at least you've been following along with the podcast. So you kind of, that's all like, sure. That's almost like watching the show, right? You don't really need the show. You can just listen to the podcast. Um, but yeah, I know I'm fascinated if there's anybody, this seems highly unlikely, but what the hell I'll ask if any of our listeners have literally just started from scratch and just watched these two episodes to listen to this podcast, please send an email to, uh, to, uh, cons with dead at gmail.com. Uh, because I would love to hear your thoughts on what it was like. What did these, ep- what were these episodes like if you had literally no context for them? That's never going to happen. I'm sure nobody has tuned in for just these two episodes. But uh, anyways, um, anything, was there anything else that you wanted to say about these or anything we missed? Just a funny scene uh, when after learning that Dawn is the key Xander try to act like a big brother and ticklish with Dawn and yeah. if and the comics is weird because Xander and Dawn become a, a couple <laughs> yeah oh that's weird once it's really weird <laughs> once again I'm not a fan of the comics but I was I am aware of that uh, I, I do know that that happened and so when he was getting all ticklish with her I was like oh ew wait a minute <laughs> this is this is awkward and this has been a more even season for Xander yeah, no, it has. I agree. I agree. After all the all the issues we've had with Sander that we've find, found out previously. <laughs> I mean, I think those issues are probably going to come swinging back hard uh, as we move on. But for the moment, at least, I'm I'm pretty I'm pretty fond of Xander again. Um. So yeah, I don't. Uh, I think I'm probably. I think I'm probably spent. I don't think I have anything else to say about these episodes. I agree, which is surprising. Yeah. Surprising. Yeah. Uh, so I'm looking at the, uh, I'm trying to get better as I, as we record these episodes, I'm trying to get better about having my guest list actually open uh, to see when, uh, if you've signed up for anything in the future and I'm scrolling through this list and I don't see that you have dropped your name into the list until like the next time I see your name is in season seven possibly you you uh you threw your name into the your your name into the hat for uh help selfless and him which i don't i don't remember what those are at all i don't i have no memory of what those three episodes are but um one of them is the debut of drew goddard in the series oh well that'll be good (laughs) that'll be good anyways um it's entirely it it is entirely possible that you will be back with us before then um 
I, I have to I have to shuffle schedules around all the time. So you are certainly welcome to come back. If another episode pops up that, that you're interested in, or if I have someone drop out, I may approach you to, to join. But um, Let me know. Yeah. Uh, at the very least, you'll be back in Season 7. So... Uh, I definitely signed up for Angel. So when we start Angel... Yes. Oh, I just have to make it to Angel. I'm just trying to survive Buffy so I can get to Angel. <laughs> uh, so um, until then... Uh, Thanks for joining me again for coming back. Uh, do you want to let the listeners at home know how they can find you? Hey guys, if you want to find me on Twitter or on Instagram, I'm Johnny T Y H J O H N Y T Y H. Have I ever asked you what the T Y H stands for? Those are actually my real initials. Oh. Because okay. Johnny is only is like my alias. My actual name registered is my actually my, my actual Chinese name. I don't remember if if we did discuss this when we did American Born Chinese over the Global Geek, but my Chinese name is He Zong Ying. And I, I think maybe we did. I think that did come up, yeah. Yeah, and then when we moved to Brazil, my documentation says Ho Zong Ying, which H C Y. H being Ho being my surname. Okay. So T Y H to me Ho. All right. There you go. That's the origin. I don't remember if we discussed this before, but that's it. There it is. There it is. It's official. We've we've outed you in the public. So, um, all right, and everybody follow him because he's great. I, I I follow him on social media. He's fantastic. Uh, again, Johnny, thanks for being here. And thank you, everybody at home, for joining me. Um, you can find links to this and all of the past episodes at the website conswithdead.com, or you can subscribe to the show on iTunes. Uh, if you do that, please rate us or write us a review. Actually, even if you don't subscribe to the show on iTunes, rate us and write us a review, because it really it really does help spread the word. There are, despite the, the running joke that I say at the top of the show, in every generation there is one podcast, um, there's actually more than one podcast. So if you could say some kind things about me, that would really help. Uh, if you've got questions for me or any of my guests, or if you'd just like to share your thoughts on anything that we've discussed, please join the conversation. You can drop us an email at conswithdead at gmail.com. Follow us on Twitter at conswithdead, or reach out to us on Facebook at uh, facebook.com slash conswithdead. I always give a shout out to the conversations with conversations with dead people group. Um, because I forget that it's a closed group and you have to ask, you have to be invited to join. But if you want to join, uh, just ask me and I'll let you join. <laughs> it's, we're not that exclusive. Uh, next week, uh, Jessica Houch makes an unconfirmed, but I think likely return to the graveyard. Uh, I'm pretty sure that Jessica will be coming back uh, next week to help me discuss episodes 514 Crush and 515 I Was Made to Love You. Until then, Gur Arg, everybody. Gur Arg. <laughs>